Comic Book Tales is an immersive comic book experience for the new or lapsed comic book fan. I take a closer look at the comics that shaped my childhood and influenced my adulthood. Comic books are an amazing entry into another world and even provide the pictures to complete the fantasy. Join me for a new Comic Book Tales adventure. Hello and welcome to another Comic Book Tales adventure. Uh, again, looking at the Marvel retrospective, uh, first point of view. I want to talk about the late Silver Age. So we talked about Golden Age, we talked about Silver Age a little bit last time. And as I said, the late Silver Age was late 70s into the 80s. There's not a definitive end so much as it was with the Golden Age or the beginning of the Marvel Silver Age. But things changed in the comic book world, and I don't necessarily think for the better, okay? So in the early days of Marvel Comics, a few years after things started getting rolling, uh, they had a collect. The, the editors would say, we've got a collection of stories that don't necessarily fit. They don't fit in the continuum of what we're telling here. But they're interesting stories, or we want to tell them, or we want to tell more about some aspect of this person, group, or team, or something like that. So let me give you an example. Uh, these were called annuals, by the way. These were called annuals. They would come out once a year, because they were annual. Um, they didn't come out every year. For a while, they came out every year, but that kind of kind of fizzled um, by the late 80s, and you don't see too many annuals anymore. It was sort of a money grab, but it was also to a collection of stories that really were interesting in and of themselves, one-shot stories that didn't typically overlap, but sometimes they would overlap with a similar book. Um, I'm thinking Avengers and West Coast Avengers at one time. But they would also, like, uh, I remember one of the, uh, I think it was Avengers Annual number 10, there was a breakout of the Avengers Mansion all the floors, what was on the floors, what was in them, basically schematics of what was involved in the Avengers Mansion, something people have been asking about. Or a Quinjet. You might get to see the internal workings of a Quinjet. Uh, you know, the X-Men, X-Mansion in the Danger Room, things like that. So it was a chance to put in some detailed drawings that somebody had said, hey, I think this would be cool. I would like to know this stuff. And we did. So we enjoyed that stuff. And the annuals were nice, but, you know, they weren't required. They weren't required reading to continue the story. So it was it was another chance to get another story that's different but still fun. And they were much longer. They, they were usually 48 to 64 pages. So they're a little bit bigger than a typical 23 to 25-page story. So they cost more. They only came out once a year, so they were kind of special in that way. And that was nice. But towards the late 70s and into the 80s, Marvel started to do something called crossovers. You see it on TV a lot nowadays, especially on two, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. You would see crossovers with those two shows because they were from the same universe, in effect, and they, they had continuity things involved. Well, you started to see that with um, Marvel, X-Men versus Avengers, um, Fantastic Four versus X-Men, Avengers, West Coast Avengers, things like that. You started to see those things. And they became bigger and bigger crossover events. So they would bleed from one book to another. Okay? With varying levels of success. Sometimes it just felt like a money grab. Well, this got to be huge in the Jim Shooter era at Marvel. You had the Secret Wars and then Secret Wars 2. And it was just basically proliferated into this huge, huge uh, attention of all these books. 
so Secret Wars, the first Secret Wars was a 12-issue limited series, reprinted a number of times. And it took place outside the continuity of the Marvel Universe, which I personally preferred because I did... I could read that separate. It was a separate standalone adventure, 12 issues, all good, happy, happy, happy. But then if you notice, they, they popped out of the Marvel Universe and they popped back in an issue or two later. So it wasn't like they were gone for very long, so you didn't miss them. It wasn't like there was months of, where are these people? Well, Secret Wars 2 changed that even further. And what you got was crossovers with all the major books at Marvel. So you'd have an X-Men Secret Wars, you'd have an Avengers Secret Wars, you'd have a West Coast Avengers Secret Wars, you'd have Fantastic Four, so on and so forth. And eventually, I mean, that one, I, I don't think I ballooned into like 45 or 50 different issues across a long, that was an eight-issue run, so eight months, blossomed into quite a bit. When I, by today, you're getting 90-plus issues required to tell the story. Now think about that. You're expecting consumers to purchase 90 issues, mostly of books they don't read, just to get the overlapping story. So this became a summer event. You had Inferno. You had the Extinction Agenda. You had uh, Evolution War, Evolutionary War. You had all these things designed, by, this is a Jim Shooter thing, designed to really take money from your pocket <laughs> and it continued on for years even after Jim Shooter was gone from the Marvel Universe <clears throat> and, it, and it wasn't a good thing it still isn't a good thing I don't like them and that's a problem for some people because you're, you're expected to purchase all these issues but that's something Marvel did and then DC caught on the bug and said hey we can make a lot of money we can force people to buy books they wouldn't normally buy and that's a good thing for us so let's do that so you get these crossover events that were limited to the summer at one point and then they became just year-long events, and they were became earth-shattering, Crisis on Infinite Earth with DC, uh, you know, Secret Invasion from Marvel, um, basically coming up with ways to bring back people that you had killed years earlier, to bring them back into this somewhat believable context of how they got back. It became a huge mess, and it's still a mess today because once you start that type of thing, you can't get away from it because you feel like, well, every time I I don't like where I'm at, I can reboot. Now, remember many issues ago or episodes ago here, I talked about DC had a lot of leftover baggage going into the 60s. They had a lot of continuity things they had to maintain. And continuity is basically what happened to this character when, and if this happened to them, it changed them at this point, and now they're this. So they can't go back to what they were uh, previously because they are this because this occurred. Well, there's always has to be somebody that keeps that. In the, in the Star Wars universe, it was George Lucas. He was keeper of the Star Wars continuity. And if you kept it small, you could keep track of all that. But you, it became unwieldy for DC, and eventually it became unwieldy for Marvel. So they were starting to f chafe under their continued continuity issues, where you'd have a different editor come in. So by the 80s, things were starting to, to drag down, and, and, and the quality of the books was going down tremendously. Uh, there were financial problems because the books weren't selling. The storylines were seen as exactly what they are, which is money grabs and not really entertaining any longer. The artwork was slipping. The thoughts were slipping. The acts of vengeance 
was killing everybody because it made no sense. Uh, it, all these things worked to weaken the brand. And I say weaken because exact, that's exactly what happened. Um, there was bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, things weren't looking good. There was a very real possibility that the Marvel Comics, as we knew it, would cease to exist because they got in over their heads. And we'll talk about that in a, a future issue episode. But I want you to make sure you understand. It, it For a while, it was like printing money, but eventually it caught up to them because you can only print that money for so long before people tired of get seeing that color money. They want to see something different. And things were rumbling in the Marvel Universe. Some of the artists and the writers were getting angry. They were getting feeling like they were left out or... Um, not appreciated the way they thought they would. And by appreciation, I mean money. Uh, much like the rest of the world, money talks, and that's the only thing that really mattered to some of these artists and writers. And they were the big names. Remember what I talked about last dish episode? They started to get their names in the print. They started to get the names in the books. Well, they suddenly started to realize, hey, I'm a commodity. I am worth more than they're paying me per page because I'm a known person. Todd McFarlane's a good example. Started the Spawn franchise. He was an artist for Spider-Man for a long time. I, I prefer his rendition of Spider-Man because I like how he made the character move. But he became the reason you bought the book. And truthfully, once he stopped doing the art for Spider Amazing Spider-Man, the sales dropped off. So there might be something to that, but it all transpires back to why did it matter? Well, it mattered because these were now the people you knew. Yes, it said Marvel Comics up in the corner, and it didn't matter who the editor-in-chief was. It didn't matter who the editor was. Nobody cared. They cared about the writer, and they cared about the artist. And that's what the 80s taught us. Artist, writer. Artist, writer. Writer, artist. It didn't matter. They were great writers. They were great artists. So you, you became what you were based on those two things. The letters, the inkers, the pencilers, they went away because nobody cared. I mean, they're in there, and they're still listed, but nobody cared. Nobody cared about the editors. Nobody cared about the editor-in-chief except the editors and the editors-in-chief. They cared about themselves, but it was really an artist-driven first, writer, second industry, and everything else was a distant third. And that's where Marvel shifted. Um, DC was still run like the traditional DC method, we own you, it's a big corporation, we're going to run you, we're going to keep you employed, we're going to have plenty for you to do. Marvel was still a little freewheeling, okay? And they were in free fall from a management perspective. There was too many f management changes. They changed hands numerous times. They were, they were part of New Line Cinema for a while. Then that didn't work out. They were spun out. Then they were spun back in. To, it just became a nightmare. You never knew from day to day who was going to be owning Marvel and what they were going to do with it. So every time you got a new ownership group, you got a different direction for the company. So the 80s were a rough, rough time for Marvel, and it continued into the 90s. Now, they still made books. I still bought those books. But they became less and less interesting the longer it went on. And it was a holding pattern for only so long. And Make Mine Marvel seemed like a distant memory because it was. Stan Lee never, didn't have day-to-day -day operational control over Marvel at this point. He was in L.A., trying to get movie, TV deals of any kind for the Marvel comics. 
and he wasn't really successful. <laughs> um, if you if, if you've ever seen the Captain America movie that he got made in the late '80s, you understand what I'm saying. Um, it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, he got a Roger Corman version of Fantastic Four without any special effects. It was horrible. I've seen it. I have it on a pirated DVD because I was able to buy it off the eBay. I don't know why I have it. I'm not sure I'm supposed to have it, but I had it somewhere. I don't even know if I still have it. But it, it was horrid. But it was somehow to keep the franchise in the in the media. And that was Stan Lee's job. Stan Lee was the face of Marvel Comics. I told you that earlier, and it, it did not change when he got to the 80s. He just had a harder time getting it. You had the Hulk on TV, the Incredible Hulk on TV. That was good, but by the mid-80s, you were left doing TV movies of the Hulk because the, the ratings had gone down, and the salaries had gone up, and you know those two don't usually mix very well. So... It was a tough time in the 80s. It was a really, really tough time. There was some resurgence in the early 90s, and I'll talk about that the uh, next episode. But understand, this was a rough, rough period because of decisions made earlier and contracts and monetary compensation for a lot of people. So I, this was not great. This was not something I think Marvel did particularly well, and the crossovers just epitomized what we're talking about in the the summer events it just showed that there was a weakness in too much too much of a good thing is simply too much too much sweet is not good you need something to balance out the sweet and they didn't have anything to balance it out they just kept giving you the same sweet and eventually we got tired of hearing it got tired of reading it got tired of seeing it and it became nauseatingly the same so next time we'll talk about uh the late bronze and into the 1990s where i'm gonna rename that era um for you but i think you'll be interested if you start looking at those books from the 80s into the early 90s you're gonna see a, a huge transition in what that means so till next time i'm chad i look forward to talking to you and continuing the marvel saga thank you This has been a Hannah Tree production.